we're thankful for these uh, next few minutes that we get to spend together in your word. But before we do that, Lord, we want to lift up a few specifics to you, Lord. We want to pray for little Jack, for his family, Lord. We pray for this people to come alongside them in this need as we continue to keep Trevor and Everett on our, on our radars as well. And their families, Lord, we want to share the burdens of a people, of families among us. We want to uh, enjoy together that um, many hands make light work. And uh, we want to participate in these needs as we can come alongside these families. Lord, I pray that as you, uh, as the Holy Spirit leads, that he would uh, guide our people to participate and come alongside the Ram family. Lord, I also want to pray, continue to pray for Trevor and Everett and for their treatments. Lord, we are serving them up and asking you to come alongside these families and their treatments and to sustain them, uh, to give them endurance, and to bring healing to these lads. Uh, entrusting them to you, Lord, and thankful to lift them up this morning to a really good Father. Lord, we pray, too, for these seeds that have been sown these, in these last few days and this previous uh, week uh, during VBS. Lord, we are thankful for the opportunity to, to have a really, really cool uh, couple of hours each day, uh, Sunday through Wednesday, really, to uh, sow good seed into little plots of soil. Lord, we pray that you would work um, kingdom stuff in these little lives and these hearts that you... You would uh, water uh, those seeds and those, uh, that they would germinate and bear fruit and that your kingdom would be advanced and uh, you'd be glorified through that work. I'm thankful for that, that opportunity that we had this week. I'm thankful for the people of God serving in so many amazing ways this last week. It was really, really a joy to see and participate in. Uh, Lord, too, we want to pray for our educators this morning. I want to lift up those who serve in so many different ways in the education system and, and teaching and, and administration. Lord, we what a challenging, challenging um, service, Lord. We just lift them up and ask you to, to sustain them, uh, to give them endurance, Lord, that you would give them a window into the, the difference that they're making in little lives and big lives and everybody in between, Lord. And we just pray that, that you would uh, guide them and help them walk by faith and not by sight for those seasons where they may not see uh, the outcome and may not see the fruit, that they would walk by faith. We are entrusting them to you, Lord, and asking you to guide them to be salty, bright, and aromatic in their context as they're serving in the education in our community. Lord, also we want to pray for Kayla and Travis Chappell and for Fellowship Bible Church, and we're thankful to lift them up, for the opportunity to lift them up this morning. Pray that you would bless them, Lord, that you would guide them in the, in the time that they're spending, likely right now as we're gathering uh, in your word, that they would be um, uh, fueled by worship. If Travis is carrying any anxiety into the pulpit this morning, I pray right now at across town that you would just give him a, a calmness. Peace. That passes understanding. And give him a potency in a message that's beyond him. I pray that your people of God, the people of God of nine million people. that don't know the name of Christ. We beg for workers to go to this field in India, Lord. We pray that you are stirring in them dreams right now, visions and itch in the middle of their back that they can't scratch, trying to make sense of their creator, their purpose, their meaning. Lord, that you would connect that dot with workers thankful to lift them up this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
Oh, man, I hope I covered everything there. That's a metaphor of the morning and the sermon, frankly. So just, I hope you have your running shoes on. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. Work boots, maybe work boots might be a better metaphor. Matthew chapter 5. We're in the Sermon on the Mount. Man, it's a high sermon, high moment where this God, the Son, steps on this mountain and preaches probably the longest. I think it is the longest uh, uninterrupted teaching that we have from him. And we are in the second beatitude. It's the second uh, little part of the introduction there at the beginning of the sermon. In verse 4. The title of the sermon, I think your bulletin may have a little uh, misprint there, mistake. It might have last week's information in there. It should reflect today's date. I think today's August the 4th. Yeah. And uh, the title of the sermon is Flourishing in Mourning, and we're looking at verse 4 of chapter 5. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I've shared over these last few weeks that we're sort of, uh, we're using some different words in here to handle each of these beatitudes. And blessed has already been replaced with the word flourishing. I would encourage you, if you're one of those that writes in your Bible, that's a great little word to write off to the side. Flourishing are those who mourn because, not for, because they shall be comforted. This is a really troubling beatitude. Man, I talked with, uh, I was sitting with my son in the den talking last night. I said, just frankly, it's a hard sell. It's a hard sell, man. We love joy. We love really feeling good about things and life and everything. And the notion of a sermon that's actually going to deal with something like mourning, that's a hard sell. As I was praying for Travis on the other side of town, he's over by the, if I have my orientation right, he's over by the airport. I was praying for myself too because this, you know, this is a hard sell. It's a hard sell. I read one commentator that, that, that said that, a way to sort of grip what's actually being said in this beatitude would be almost like translating it by saying, happy are the unhappy. Huh. What kind of new math is that, right? I mean, that, that doesn't sound right. Happy are the unhappy. It's not quite what's being said here, but at least brings out just how striking and surprising this beatitude is. So I want to give you sort of an audio, audible map for the morning. That might help you. To know kind of where we're going in these next few minutes. What I want to do at the very beginning of this sermon is really sort of deal with uh, what, what might, uh, it's not quite a survey, I'm just looking at one story really. And it's sort of a story that sort of connects to the story of Christ that I think will bring us to a place of considering some things that should be part of our journey together as the people of God. Okay, so we're going to look at some Old Testament stuff. And we're not going to spend a lot of time there. In fact, I want you to sort of conserve your listening currency. You can still listen. I mean, you don't need to go thinking about your to-do list or texting a buddy or anything like that. I would encourage you to still listen, but really sort of conserve the listening currency for later on in the sermon where I'm going to be dealing with the exile. Okay, the Babylonian exile, to be specific. Okay? All right, so let's, let's go back to an Old Testament story. If you'd like to turn there, you can, or you can just listen along. I'm not really going to re- be reading a bunch of uh, lengthy passages. I'm just sort of telling the story of Joseph in some ways, uh, really through tears. As I was studying this question of, of mourning, this issue of mourning, I went to God's Word and said, okay, let's just look, look cover to cover for, this, for tears, just to follow the tears. And what I found really is a Bible full of tears. 
But one place where I found profound, um, frequent tears was in the life of a guy named Joseph. It began with, uh, in chapter 37, where Joseph is beaten up by his brothers. He's thrown into a pit. Uh, his, his, his brothers sell him off into slavery. There's no recorded tears in that exchange, but I would imagine there were probably a few. Later on, one of his brothers refers to that time as him being a boy. I, mean, I, I just can't imagine there weren't some tears uh, shed by a boy that's beaten up by his brothers and thrown into a pit and sold into slavery. We don't have any recorded tears yet, but when the news came to his father, Jacob, there's some recorded tears. So his father wept when he had this news. Fast forward a couple chapters over. Um, you, get, you fast forward through the chapters where he becomes a slave. He's sold off into slavery. He actually becomes a slave working for a, a man named Potiphar. And his wife really thinks he's pretty awesome and puts the moves on him. And then he's accused of going after her. And then he's thrown into prison for a couple of years or a few years. We don't really know exactly how long. Chapters 40 and 41 sort of cover that time frame where he's in prison. He's being forgotten, too. He's been promised some things because he's interpreting dreams. And he's been forgotten. We don't know that there's any recorded, there's no recorded tears or mourning or weeping in those passages. But I can't but imagine that when you're living in prison and being forgotten by those who promised to get you out, that there wouldn't be a few tears shed. But you pick up in chapter 42, and then you start to see some tears flowing. You probably know the story where the brothers come to Egypt to try and get some food because they're experiencing famine back in Canaan. And here in chapter 42, verse 21, the brothers are talking to one another. And they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. They're speaking about Joseph in his presence, not knowing that this, this, this is their brother. In that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered him, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? There it is. But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there's an interpreter between them. Then he, being Joseph, turned away from them and wept. Those are the first of the recorded tears. Then in chapter 43, he wept again so loud, apparently, that his... Um, his servants, Egyptian servants, could hear him. In verse 30, Joseph hurried out for his compassion, grew warm for his brothers, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Fast forward to chapter 45. It says, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. This is the point where he comes clean and says, this is who I am. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh Heard it Later on in that chapter, he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon him. Now, that's kind of weird, but that's probably more uh, cultural kissing than any, anything else. It definitely is. Now, verse or chapter 59 is where Jacob gives the blessing to his sons. At the end of that chapter, in just a profound moment, it must have been so awesome to give the blessings to his sons and then to draw his feet up into bed and to croak. The timing is so cool. I mean, like, that's awesome, Jacob. That's Talk about a way to go. But he does that. He gives the blessing to his sons, draws his feet up into bed. He passes away. And then in chapter 50, verse 1, Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And then later on in that chapter, after his father had passed away, his brother's thinking, now Joseph is going to do us in. 
Now that dad's gone, Joseph is going to do us in. And his brothers appeal to him. And they say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. And Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And Joseph was weeping all over this story. This story is tear-soaked. And finishing up with this last statement, do not fear through tears, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Man, just imagining what this must have been like. This whole story must have been like for Joseph. He don't have, we don't have a lot of explanation about all the tears and all the mourning that must have been associated with that. But we can imagine that suffering at the hands of your brothers is going to lead to some tears. We can imagine the sadness over the many years apart and slavery in prison would lead to a lot of tears. We can imagine, too, that sadness over seeing his brothers grow up and go on with life without him like he didn't even matter would lead to plenty of tears. But, man, this is one that really hits me. Sadness over separation from his father due to his brother's sin. I hope that sounds familiar to you. Sadness over separation from his father due to his brother's sin. And then this just mourning over the whole ordeal while knowing through tears that what men meant for evil, God meant for good that many people should be kept alive. Man, it's a wonderful story. I hope it sounds familiar. I hope it sounds like a shadow of a substance. As I'm reading this, looking for this story, this cover-to-cover you know, story of tears and looking at Joseph's story, some of the things stood out to me about Christ's story. Because Jesus wept and mourned as well. There are a few times that come to mind, three of them, that I'm going to bring up in these next few minutes. The third one is where we're going to spend most of our time and where we're going to go from there for the rest of the morning. But the first place that came to mind is in John chapter 11. He's weeping over the death and loss of a friend named Lazarus. You're probably hopefully familiar with the story. If not, I encourage you to read that story. It's a wonderful story. It tells us a lot about the kind of Savior that we have, that he would have friends. Man, I love a Savior that has friends. He has friends named Mary and Martha and a friend named Lazarus. And his friend Lazarus dies. He waits for him to die, by the way. He gets news of his sickness, and he says, Ah, we're going to hang out here a little bit longer until he's stone-cold dead. Now, he didn't use those words, but that's what he told his disciples in so many words. We're going to wait until I can officially be fully glorified in what's about to unfold. So he waits until, he, until he's stone cold dead. And it just sounded so familiar to Joseph's story. He's weeping over death and loss like Joseph weeping over the death of his father. And Jesus is weeping over what could have been were it not for sin. He's weeping over what could have been were it not for sin. 
You know, I know the celebration of life is sort of a theme that we have when we lose the love of one. It's sort of a Christian thing that a lot of people want to do, and there's nothing wrong with that. And I want to, if, if you have done that for a loved one, man, I don't want to cast any shadow on that. But, man, I want to encourage you, if you lose a loved one in the future, to give tremendous space for some real grieving and some real mourning and some real loss because there's a shape and a space of someone that has they used to fill it that's now empty and gone. And we should have some profound connection to that. It seems Jesus did. This person-shaped hole and the broken and sad hearts that are left in the wake. And I think that's why we can enjoy the promise of Christ's return that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. I love a Jesus and a Savior that comes to his friends and weeps with them because of their loss. Man. Now he knew he's about to raise him from the dead. He already told his disciples, I'm going to be glorified. He knew all that. He's not mourning the loss of a friend in a specific sense. He's mourning, I believe, the loss of a friend in a more general sense. That friends die at all. Man, what a great Savior. Mourning, apparently, that sin entered the world at all, resulting in this terrible thing called death. Appears we weren't made for it. He must have mourned knowing that Lazarus was going to die again. Just go ahead and keep the bulletins, Mary and Martha. You just change the date on him because he's going to die again. This is just in some way sort of rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. It's going to be another funeral. And there had to have been some grieving going along with that. But on this day, man, he wept and he mourned. Another occasion that I can think of when he wept and mourned is in Matthew chapter 26. I would like you, if you would, to turn to Matthew chapter 23. And I'll share this Matthew chapter 26 passage with you as you turn there. Matthew chapter 26. Hopefully this is a familiar passage Um, It's an occasion of profound mourning. You're in Matthew chapter 23, just hanging tight, just being going to be ready. That's where we're really going to get into the throes of the sermon. So the second place that I can think of where Jesus uh, mourned in this case. He's at the Garden of Gethsemane. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. Remain here and watch with me. Going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Again, he prayed for a second time. He went away and prayed, Father, if this cannot pass, unless I drink it, your will be done. And he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words, My Father, if this cannot pass, unless I drink it, your will be done. And then they came to his disciples, and they're asleep. And says, See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The sorrowful and despairing Lord that we have here is a window into mourning. 
He's mourning about what's unfolding, what's about to happen, but he's trusting God. He's trusting that what others meant for evil, God will mean for supreme good so that many people will live. Amen? Man, you see the beauty, the familiar words there? What these guys are going to mean for evil, I'm trusting you, Father, even through my tears and my sorrow and my sweat falling like drops of blood, that it will mean life for many. And then this third place where he is lamenting in this case is in Matthew chapter 23. Here's what's interesting about the Beatitudes. Each of them have sort of a corresponding narrative where Jesus exemplifies the Beatitude. And this is the corresponding narrative, what I'm about to read. Those others were just sort of warm up. Those others will just sort of kind of get you sort of ready, kind of get you in a mourning sort of spirit. But this is the one we're really going to spend our time in these next few minutes. This is the corresponding picture of blessed are the mourning, for they shall be comforted. Right here in this reference in chapter 23 of Matthew. It begins in verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus here is lamenting over the sins of his brothers. Sound familiar? Lamenting over the sins of his brothers and the desolate land they'd become. Man, it's Joseph's story all over again. Lamenting over the sins of his brothers and the desolate land they'd become. There's a parable, just a couple chapters in front of it, that really tells the story of what he's referencing here. And if you would, just turn a couple pages over to chapter 21. I'm going to show you this parable. It's called the parable of the tenants in our Bibles there, the reference. Beginning in verse 33. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near... He sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. If you want to give these people some identity, just call them prophets. It's exactly what he's talking about a couple chapters later. I sent you the prophets, and what did you do? You killed them. You stoned them. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first. And they did the same to them. And finally, he sent his son to them, his only begotten son. That son. Okay, we're talking parable, but he's exposing a profound truth here. He says, I, they'll respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. This has to be a profound lament. In Matthew chapter 23, where he's lamenting over Jerusalem, knowing that his brothers are about to throw him into a pit and sell him into slavery, and eventually, the parable so beautifully illustrates the mourning our Lord must have experienced in his earthly ministry, hearing from his brothers 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then days later from the same mouths, give us Barabbas. heartbreak of what had become of God's chosen people, God's relentless favor at every turn, a fence around the vineyard, a beautiful vineyard, God's relentless favor at every turn, and they respond with idolatry, materialism, pride, and oppression of the poor. And here they're about to murder the vineyard's very own son. They'll respect him. No. No, they won't. They're going to crucify him. Isaiah 53, verse 3 says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Man, I think it's fitting that Joseph wept a lot because if he's to shadow the substance that is Christ, it's fitting that he wept a lot. I'm trying to make sense of all this, you know, I'm trying to make sense of this beatitude. It's a simple sentence. I mean, you can memorize it. Flourishing. Remember, that's the word we're replacing with blessed, but we'll just for the sake of memorization. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. It's easy to say. It's easy to memorize. But what are we getting at here? Are we mourning for the loss of a loved one? Is this about bereavement? Is this an encouragement as a Christian to sort of be an Eeyore? You just kind of mope about, just sad about everything? You know, we get mad at those guys that say, he's good all the time. We say, no, he's not. I'm sad today. Is that the encouragement? I think we need to get at what he's encouraging here in this beatitude. And the window into what he's encouraging here is in this passage, this reference, this lament over his people. This lament over Jerusalem. Lament over Israel. The last place I think I'd have you turn this morning is in Isaiah chapter 61. I think it'll be home base for us just for a few minutes, at least where you can stay. Isaiah chapter 61. You may remember the story in Luke chapter 4 where Jesus goes into the synagogue and he, they hand him the, the scroll from Isaiah. He opens it up. He reads a passage and and then he hands them back the scroll and he sits down like a boss. And then he just looking, just kind of staring out in the room and said, Today in your hearing this passage is fulfilled. This is the passage that I'm referring to. And this is the passage that is the background for the Beatitudes, at least these first few. This is the window into making sense of the morning that we should be walking in. Okay? Isaiah chapter 61, this is the back. You're going to hear some ingredients here that are familiar that you've heard in the Beatitudes, just the first couple that we've considered already. So listen to them. Isaiah chapter 61, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. This is Isaiah writing, but this is, is, is as if the Lord is speaking here, our Lord. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Man, there it is, right there he is in, in Galilee. Bring good news to the poor and the neglected, away from the flagpole, stepping up on a mountain with beautiful feet to bring good news to the poor, and not just the poor, the poor in spirit. We considered last week, right? There he is. 
The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort, there it is, all who mourn. And this passage is the window into making sense of the kind of mourning that we should experience as the people of God. See, the exiles, man, I, I've shared with you over the years, these two high watermarks, the exodus and the exiles, are things that the people of God, even today, should really saturate your minds and hearts with. The exiles is what Isaiah is referring to here. This, the exiles were a tutor in brokenheartedness. The exiles were a tutor in captivity. So they're ripped from their homes and taken to a foreign land. And it's in that that they experienced a profound need for the comfort that Isaiah is promising. Comfort to the morning. The preacher of this sermon references this passage. And he's referencing himself as, now the comfort's here. I'm it. I'm standing here on this sermon, and they're giving this sermon on this mount this day as the fulfillment of this passage. I am your comfort to those who experience brokenheartedness and captivity. So I just want to take just a moment to sort of consider this exile thing. There's some other passages that come to mind as considering the exile that give us windows into what we should be doing as the people of God. What this beatitude should have to do with us here 2,000 years after the comfort stood on that mountain and preached and then a few years later was nailed to a cross. Could that have anything to do with us? Could that exile give us a window into something that should be happening in us? Here's just a few passages. Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah is the weeping prophet. You know the story of maybe... You know the story of Jeremiah. Isaiah was a prophet leading up to the Babylonian exile. Jeremiah was a prophet during the Babylonian exile. Okay, Jeremiah had a front row seat to the captivity, to all the things that Christ has promised to bring comfort to, the brokenheartedness. He had a front row seat to that. Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah says this. Let me find it. You don't have to turn there, but you can if you want. Oh, I got it right here. Oh, that my head were waters, and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the desert a traveler's lodging place, like a nice desert Airbnb, that I might leave my people and go away from them. He's mourning over the condition of this people. Isaiah has prophesied some comfort that's going to come to a people that have a pattern of walking in sin. And here is Jeremiah 9. Jeremiah's got a front row seat to it. Oh, that I could park this people at an Airbnb in the desert, that I might leave my people and go away from them. For they're adulterers, a company of treacherous men. Man, Jeremiah is praying for something there. He's mourning over something that's not just him. See, this is what's so hard for us. This is what's so hard for me in preparing this sermon. As a Westerner, and I don't mean like boots wearing, you know, holster wearing Westerner, cowboy hat. I'm talking like the live, live in the U.S., where we live. We think like a bunch of individuals. 
a bunch of, a bunch of individuals. We can't think corporately. But what Christ is doing when he's lamenting over Jerusalem is he's lamenting over a people. What Jeremiah is doing when he's lamenting over his people, he's lamenting over a people and how they've moved corporately. He's doing something that could be completely foreign to us because we don't think in terms of peoples. We think about ourselves. Maybe if we're really special, we think about our family. But most of us think and move like a bunch of individuals. So we can't hardly make sense of this. But Jesus is mourning, and I'm going to give it a term, corporately. Isaiah did plenty of it. You didn't hear it there in the passage that I referenced from Isaiah in chapter 61. But he did plenty of it over the course of the Isaiah, mourning for a people corporately. Jeremiah is mourning for a people corporately. Here's Daniel. Okay, fast forward to the exiles. Isaiah is mourning over a, an exile that's coming. Jeremiah is mourning as he's in an exile. Daniel is going to mourn while he's in Babylon. This is profound. I want you to just envision this guy, Daniel. We think of Daniel as this guy that's really well-fed, a lot of character. <laughs> what a great story for all the kids, right? Man, I'm going to do, even if I'm thrown to the lions, I'm going to be faithful. Okay, I want you to realize this. Daniel likely, when he was taken to Babylon to serve in the king's court, was probably likely made a eunuch. I'm just going to tell you right now, I'd be kind of hacked. I'd be kind of mad. I'd be kind of mad at my forefathers that landed me in this foreign land. But listen to how this guy prays. It's, it's unbelievable how he's praying corporately. Listen to what he says. O oh Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem. He's in Babylon, in the king's court. Your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who were around us. Now, therefore, O God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy, O Lord, hear, O Lord, forgive, O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. A few verses later, he says, I'm speaking and I'm praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people. This guy is mourning corporately. He's mourning for the sins of a people. That's who's going to be the flourishing over there in the Beatitudes. Man, even the people that don't know the Lord mourn over the loss of a loved one. That's not hard. We're talking about something profound and distinct here in the Beatitudes where people are mourning the flourishing or mourning over something bigger. Fast forward after the exile, because maybe the exile fixed the problem, right? We'd hope so. You get ripped from your home, and you have to go off to a foreign land, serving in the king's court. Man, hopefully that would fix the problem, but fast forward to the time of Ezra. Ezra's among the guys that let, that's allowed to go back to the land to rebuild the temple, 
Man, Ezra 2 faces the sins of the people. It didn't fix the problem. Ezra chapter 10, it says, Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Johanan, the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he's mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. He's mourning over people. The whole chapter in front of it, chapters 9 and 10, is just tears, gushing, mourning, sadness over a people. So the exiles didn't fix it. So maybe the intertestamental period, maybe somewhere between Malachi and Matthew, we fixed the problem. But it doesn't look like it because there's two people that are waiting for Christ to be born, one named Simeon and one named Anna. Remember Simeon? He's waiting for the consolation, the comfort of Israel, mourning and pining for it. And there's Anna that's waiting for the redemption of the people. Man, I think there's something going on here with this people that is profound. I don't know that I or we really know how to think or grieve or mourn corporately awaiting for his comfort or waiting his comfort. But flourishing are those who mourn corporately as a people needing comfort. Here's what I think it might look like. You made it through the hard part. That was that's where, all that was where it got dicey. So if you survived that. You're in the home stretch. Here's where I think it might look like for us. If flourishing is for those who mourn, flourishing is for those who mourn because they shall be comforted. There's an already aspect to that, and there's a not yet aspect to that. If you've been paying attention, you've already noticed that we were considering that Isaiah is talking about a prophetic passage, that there's going to come some comfort someday. And then Jesus, when he reads that passage, says it's being fulfilled right now. He's here. I'm here. Comfort's here. But yet here in the Beatitudes, he's encouraging us to continue to mourn. How then is this supposed to play out? Well, I think first of all, we have to celebrate that comfort has indeed come to us. Man, we should definitely consider and enjoy that comfort has indeed already come to us. There's a passage in 2 Corinthians, verses one, three, or chapter 1, 3 through 5. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Man, there is a huge already in that, that we get to enjoy massive comfort in the personal work of Christ. So is there a place for us to still continue to mourn? Man, yes, we hold up Christ like Simeon did. He said, my eyes have seen your salvation, that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples the light for the revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. We hold the Christ child up with Simeon, and we see, yes, we've found comfort officially. But while we celebrate comfort, we pine for the consolation of the world. <laughs> Room full of individuals, right? What? Yeah, we pine for the consolation of the world. We pine for the consolation of the nation we live in. Can we do that? Can we pine for the consolation and the comfort of our community? 
How about that? Let's kind of bring it down to earth for us. So where we have a people that are so distinct, so salty and bright and aromatic that they're actually pining for God's comfort to come to a community. Pining for the consolation of a neighborhood. How about that? Let's really bring it down to earth. How about a workplace? Anybody want to see the comfort of God come to the workplace? The comfort that is in the person and work of Christ come to your workplace? Is this a completely foreign thought for a room full of people? This is going to be coupled with mourning. In fact, mourning is going to fuel that type of burden. That you have a workplace that's not comforted. That you have a neighborhood that's not comforted. A community that's not comforted. A world that's not comforted yet. A people group of 9 million people that have not found comfort. How we bring salt to this decaying world is that we mourn and we pine for that together. Corporate mourning. Man. While we enjoy his first coming, we mourn together for peoples and places where he's not recognized as Lord. We mourn together for people who don't know him, who are living according to their own ways and their own plans. Man, we should mourn together over abortion. Could we mourn together over abortion? In 2017, there were 870 5,000 abortions. In all of our wars, Revolutionary War, War of 1812, the Mexican War, the Civil War, the Spanish-American War, World War I, World War II, Korean War, Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, the Gulf War, total casualties, 750,000. Less than one year of abortions. Can we pine together and mourn over that? Huh. Should we mourn together over the redefinition of marriage? Can we together be brokenhearted over that? Mm. Can we mourn together maybe over the health and wealth message among the church? That that's such an easy sell. And that so many people are lied to and fooled by a bunch of baloney. Can we mourn together over that? Corporately, can we think outside of our individual selves for a moment and pine together and mourn together over that? Can we mourn over false teaching? Can we mourn over sinfulness, faithlessness, apostasy? Joshua Harris? Is anybody mourning with me over this? I kissed dating goodbye, now he's kissed Jesus goodbye. Hmm. Should we mourn over poverty? Can we be so interrupted by this sermon on this mount 2,000 years ago that we mourn together over poverty? Man, we've got it in our community. How many, how many days a week, Aaron, do we have somebody walk in our front door? 
benevolence team? How, many, how much time is there spent with people that have needs? Can we be interrupted by that? Can we be brokenhearted together and think outside of ourselves long enough to think about poverty and homelessness, fatherlessness? Can we mourn together over sin and sickness and loss? Can we mourn together over broken marriages and broken homes? Can we mourn together over the unrepentant inside and outside the church? Can we mourn together over whole people groups who don't know the Lord, the Avi, Dravida, 9 million people? Can we mourn together over the lack of workers that are going to those fields? Can we mourn together about materialism and how easily we are all so fooled? Can we mourn together over that? Can we mourn together as a people over things like racism? Can we mourn over slavery even though my dad didn't have a slave? Or my granddad? Can we together mourn that that happened right here? Can we? David's mourning over the sins of his fathers. Man, can we mourn over the fact that people experience racism that we can't even fathom? In the ways that they're treated and things that are said to them over their lifetimes, little pings here and there that we think, ah, what's the big deal? A cumulative effect that can have on a human being? Can we mourn together over that? Can we mourn together over the degradation of even the definition of gender? Can we mourn over human trafficking? Can we mourn over sex trafficking? Can we mourn over mass shootings? Maybe that's fresh enough for us. You know, I thought this morning, I couldn't remember how many people died in El Paso yesterday. So I pulled it up, and it turns out, since yesterday in El Paso, where 20 people were mowed down and 26 were wounded. In Dayton, nine more people were mowed down and 26 more were wounded. Since El Paso. Can we mourn together that that's the world we live in? Mm, Man. Can we mourn together over the accessibility of porn? I don't have my cell phone with me. Can we mourn together that it doesn't even take a password for people anymore? They can go and see live action porn on their phone. When I was growing up, there was a kid in our neighborhood. His dad had some hidden. He's the only kid in the neighborhood. Popular kid. Everybody wanted to go hang out at his house. It was hard to get to. And now everybody in the world. Can we mourn together over that? Man, I mourn over it. Can we mourn in how that's invaded families and homes and lives and marriages? Can we mourn that young men, not just young men either, young women are putting that into their heads all day long right here in this room? Can we together mourn and let this interrupt us? Man, I hope we can. Can we mourn over the death of hospitality with this thing called busyness? Man, can we mourn over the fact that in large parts of the world where people don't even know the Lord, that they're far more hospitable than we are when that is the way that we get to bring people into the 
the faith. The way we get to sow seed of the kingdom, where we take weeknights and we take times and we have people into our homes. But we can't do that because we're so busy. Can we mourn together over things like that? Man. James has a word for us today at the end of this message. James chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. I think the charge for us this morning, people of God, as we consider this shocking beatitude, is that we are to live soberly, remembering that we are sojourners and pilgrims here. If we forget that we're here on mission, man, we've got no burden anymore. If we remember that we are sojourners and pilgrims in a decaying world and that God has called us, this room of people, to be salt in that decay, to be light in that darkness, then you're going to experience some profound mourning. And it will cause you to cry out Godward. There's time for laughter. Man, there's time for laughter. I love a good laugh. Ooh, man, I love it. I could use one right now, but not today. Not today. Not while we consider our mission and we swallow hard together. We mourn together looking for the comfort that only comes from God in Christ. Let's pray. God, we have felt the, uh, the darkness this morning, just considering this list and taking, a, taking stock for a few minutes of the darkness of the world that we live in. Uh, Lord, I, uh, I pray that for a moment that we together have mourned as a people. Lord, that we can have a corporate mourning as a response, as part of our journey of faith. corporate mourning that gives us a burden to be salty and bright in this dark place. Lord, I pray for those in this room that are experiencing the darkness, just as I'm thinking about the accessibility of porn and thinking, for example, of people in this room that may be struggling with that even in this moment. Lord, I'm thankful that in these next few minutes and daily, hourly we can make a beeline to our comfort that is the person of Christ he is our comfort period we are thankful
his name we pray. Amen. I didn't read the rest of Isaiah 61, those verses, and I'd like to read those verses before we distribute the elements. Man, just see him on that mountaintop that day. See him on that mountain preaching beautiful feet. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, the opening of prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. Man, I would look like such a goober with a beautiful headdress on, but I kind of want one right now because it's just so, he's so awesome. I'd wear it. A beautiful headdress instead of ashes, you know, when you're mourning, putting ashes on your head. Big old headdress. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. (laughs) That they may be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. Man, let's just stop right there. Let's distribute the elements and enjoy them.